This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Ontarians were told by the Ford PCs the long-term care and housing laws, Bill 7 and 23 respectively, were coming But how many saw this one? An Ontario Superior Court of Justice has struck down Bill 124 that capped wage increases for public sector workers to 1% annually for three years. This law has been at the center of ongoing labor strife between the provincial Tories and members of some public sector unions who blame much of the labor shortages in our healthcare system on Bill 124. The provincial PCs have signaled their intention to appeal the Superior Court decision with taxpayers' dollars, no less, despite pleas from union leaders not to go down the path. For reaction to the court decision and whether this dispute will continue to drag on, Libby heard from Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and J.P. Hornick, president of the Ontario Public Services Employee Union. The complete vindication of the position that the 40-plus unions and associations took in respect to Bill 124 it's a historic victory and uh, a true example of what can be accomplished when workers and unions stand together to protect our charter rights. I think that it can't be overstated uh, the impact that Bill 124 has had on health care, on education, on child care, on our ability to recover from the pandemic and support these systems and frontline workers. Doris, your reaction? Glorious day for democracy, Libby. You and I have spoken so many times about the damning effect of this bill. Uh, it's a glorious day yesterday for workers in this, ca- in this country because the implications are a message for everybody. Uh, kudos, kudos to the unions that took it on. Kudos to the lawyers that defended the unions and a plea to the premier to Please, please, please move to a new book, a book of allowing the right of unions to negotiate as it should be in a progressive democracy. We live in a democracy, Libby. It's time to move on to being one. JP, I mean, the unions, QP, just had a big victory on a similar issue. And the Ford government, uh, the premier, uh, to quote him, put some water in his wine and he backed off using the notwithstanding clause. Uh, so uh, are you expecting the same thing to happen with this? Well, I mean, you know, I think that you make a good point when you remind the listeners that this is the second time this month that we've actually had a victory in response to the government's overreach around bargaining rights. And these are attacks not just on unionized workers, but on all workers. When the government used the notwithstanding clause around Bill 28 on QP education workers, it's also an attack on the freedom of expression. 
And what we have to look at here is to make sure that would remind this government, as Doris just noted, that these are attacks on democracy and they will be met with solidarity among the unions, among community allies, among activists. This is a government that's shown a, a, a remarkable willingness to suspend charter rights. But what we have to remember is the victory is when every person, every worker stands together to say, no, enough is enough. Doris, uh, so far, the government, though, has said they intend to appeal. This is not only the unions. This is not only our associations. The public is on site. The public is on site with this, and the premier knows it. Time to move to a good book where we will serve the province together for the sake of Ontarians being healthy, being in schools, doing good work and really being a province for all. J.P. Hornick, what is the next move, assuming that they go ahead with an appeal as they have signaled? You know, I think that if they decide to go ahead with the appeal, and my understanding is they're reviewing it now and haven't announced a, a solid decision on that, I think, you know, the easier road that we could all take would be to work together. Uh, to try and find a path through that's going to work for workers uh, and that, you know, demonstrates the unions are standing together. I am excited to be working with labor leaders, with community allies uh, to to find that way forward and, you know, would invite uh, Doug Ford and his government to join us in recognizing that unconstitutional legislation that should never have been passed is now gone and we need to look forward, not backwards. J.P. Hornick, president of OPSU, and Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. It turns out 3.4 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines went to waste in this province. And the main reason revealed by Ontario's Auditor General is linked to the lower uptake of booster shots by Ontario residents. Bonnie Lissick unveiled the contents of her most recent report on Wednesday and explained some of her findings when she joined Libby the next day. Yeah, I mean, you know, I go back to our process when we write these reports and we clear them. So the reports are all 100% vetted by the ministry. And in fact, I did meet with the minister and I did have a conversation and uh, um, there wasn't any negativity around the report that was expressed to me. I think at the end of the day, you know, there's a sensitivity and there's also sensitivity sometimes when how things are, how things come out. Um but I do think if, you know, the report, the recommendations were accepted and, and uh, you know, are going to be thought about going forward. In fact, with our previous COVID reports, we had high uptake of those recommendations um, to the point where about 88% in our COVID reports, uh, the recommendations were either implemented or in the process. So I'd say, you know, it's like anything. I think there is a sensitivity when there's public a public discussion of something. But I really do believe that the intent is to um, learn from the audit report, and that's, that's our objective there. I think the one thing that I've noticed that's coming out maybe not as, as fairly is that we talk in the report about wastage, and, and maybe that term has led everyone to believe there's excessive wastage. All we're commenting there is that um, I think Ontario had about 9% of the vaccines that were had to be destroyed or, or um, weren't used. 
And that's within a range up to about 15% that would be considered reasonable. Now, at the beginning of the pandemic, there wasn't. It was There was very efficient use of the vaccines. What happened in January to, let's say, June of this year is that there was less uptake of the vaccines. Um, you know, everyone was was quite supportive of getting two vaccines. And then the amount that came into Ontario from the federal government was widely dispersed into the pharmacies who needed to be there to have vaccines. Unfortunately, they weren't able to administer all that was given. So about 77% of what we see not being used was through the pharmacies, as well as two private organizations, um, Switch Health and FH Health, that uh, came on board, I think, in January of this year to do sort of specialized vaccination. So overall... You know, it's within a realm of reasonableness. So the report, I, th- I think the report is fair and balanced, and we did get complete sign-offs and um, from the ministry. And uh, yeah, the minister right, but, at the time was, fi- was but fine. But she seemed very angry yesterday. What was your reaction to that? Um, you know, I didn't hear about that until after. And, and uh, But, you know, I guess I've been in this position long enough to know there are reasons that I <laughs> I, I can't explain sometimes in terms of the political posturing or political conversation with media around issues. And I don't take it, I, I, I take it for what it is, you know, um, maybe at the time there was something that triggered that. But, um, you know, I, I feel that we did, a, my team did a good job. We had some public health people on the audit. And uh, I think it, it's a good report to read on a go, to take into account the go forward. And I think the key thing in that report, the key point we were making is, the IT side of it, you know, where it would be good for Ontario to have a, an operative central booking system in case this is needed down the road, as well as a registry of vaccination history for people, because a lot of the work around those things had to uh, was delayed during the start of COVID. Like they needed to, they needed to develop a whole new database for vaccination um, registration. So, so I think there's a lot to be. Um, learned from the report and not everything, you know, people don't like hearing something didn't work as well, but our objective is go forward. You know, we learn from our past. It's like all of us. We can, we can always learn. Ontario Auditor General Bonnie Lissick in conversation with Libby on Thursday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, reaction to the AG's report from the NDP opposition. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As we detailed before the break, there were some surprising findings from Ontario's Auditor General on the province's COVID vaccination rollout. Bonnie Lissick calls it uncoordinated and wasteful, leading to millions of COVID vaccine doses going unused. She revealed in her report, and also with Libby, the COVID vaccine rollout favored those with access to better technology, duplicated its functions across different systems, and failed to adequately prioritize areas identified as COVID hotspots. In addition, doctors were paid five times more than nurses for administering COVID vaccines. Libby spoke with NDP health critic Frost Jelena about some of the latest findings by the Auditor General. 
I just came out of question period where I get to ask question to the Minister of Health. When I brought forward that question, um, basically um, was, you know, like, could we have done better coordinating the rollout? Could we have done better making sure that we had a, a decision-making tool that told us who to prioritize for vaccine rollout that wasn't followed, uh, do you think we could have done better? The Minister of Health exploded in anger against the uh, Auditor General, uh, saying that uh, uh, she does not agree with the Auditor General and uh, that uh, they did everything perfect. Uh, was not a good start. It was not a good start. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I've never met Sylvia Jones, but she seems to be, uh, I don't know, maybe she, uh, gets angry a lot. Um, <laughs> she was this morning anyway. You will remember SARS where we had, um, um, many cases. We had, uh, healthcare workers who died. We had Ontarian who died. After this, we we did an inquiry. We look back, and uh, strong recommendations were made to say, what do we need to do to prepare for the next pandemic? Right. So a plan was put together, and a lot of really smart people look at how do we get ready. We know there will be one. We don't know when. We all know there will be one. What should we do to get ready? And we were not ready whatsoever. You will remember that Ontario was still paying $3 million a year renting warehouses full of PPE that had expired. <laughs> uh, not only had they had bought back in the two, year 2000 the PPEs, they never managed this inventory. They never did anything with it. They just paid uh, some private lucky guy $3 million to use his warehouse and did nothing with it. Uh, and we canceled the early warning system, and that was on the Liberals. Correct. Correct. Uh, all of this was on the Liberal. Um, I mean, the Auditor General did a report back in 2014 telling them, hey, you have to do something. Those PPEs are coming to, are about to expire. Why don't we send them to our hospital and, and long-term care home that use PPEs on, on an ongoing basis because of the flu, because of all of this, uh, rather than let them expire? None of that was done. Uh, so, uh, COVID came. We were not ready. Uh, the people that have the knowledge and skills to, to manage a pandemic are mainly in public health. They were, the premier put a, uh, advisory table together and there was zero public health expert on his, uh, in, on his advisory table. Uh, there were uh, many for-profit manufacturer, but zero public health expert. And, and then, um, the Auditor General goes back and look at where did the money go, how did things get rolled out, uh, tell us about waste of money, tell us uh, about uh, not following their own protocol as to which community should is at high risk and should get access to the vaccine first. None of this was followed uh, by the government. And, and when you point out those facts, uh, they just get angry and aggressive and don't answer. This morning, I mean... The, the opening question was, you know, like, um, why didn't you work with public health to 
make the rollout more efficient. It, it was not like a partisan question or anything. I, I quoted from the report, and she exploded in saying that uh, none of this, she does not agree with any of this, uh, that they did a fabulous job, that Ontario is the best, and anybody who said otherwise is wrong. Hmm. And, uh, hmm. NDP health critic Frost Jelena. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Did someone from the Ford government tip off developers about plans to open up some of the green belt for new housing? Both Municipal Affairs and Housing Minister Steve Clark and Premier Doug Ford say it wasn't them, but the optics are not good. And then there is the issue of giving developers a big break on development charges, something mayors in Ontario cities say will leave them with big deficits. Toronto Mayor John Tory has done a deal where the provincial Tories promised to cover any shortfall. And there is word some, but not all other cities, will get the same. But at the end of the day, it is highly unlikely that developers will pass along their savings to property taxpayers, since there is nothing in the new provincial housing legislation requiring them to do so. This was the topic of discussion when Libby was joined on Thursday by the Tune Into the Town panel. James Pasternak is Toronto City Councillor for Ward 6, York Centre. David Crombie is a former mayor of Toronto. And Karen Stintz is CEO at Variety Village. I think I can say with confidence there were many conversations that allowed developers to either be told directly or read through the lines around uh, where the changes might be made. And so whether, you know, I, I wouldn't say that he, you know, sat down and told specific developers, you know, here's what's going to change here on this date. But as they were, you know, identifying areas that were close to infrastructure or within the urban boundaries or, you know, setting all of that frame, those framework pieces, I'm sure there was enough for developers to read between the lines to know where the next conversions are going to be or where the green belt would open up for them. David Crombie, I mean, uh, uh, Schreiner from the Green Party has asked the Integrity Commissioner to have a look at this. Uh, is there kind of a, a fine line between tipping them off and, as Karen said, having, you know, reasonable discussions with them that that uh, gave them the heads up to make even more money? Well, it, it, I think it's worth remembering it was in 2018, I think, that the Premier uh, indicated to a group of uh, developers at the time that he was looking forward to carving out chunks of the, uh, the, the of the green belt uh, for development, and they all applauded. He later on, of course, said set out his undying love for the future of the green belt and said he wouldn't touch a hair of his head. We're now back to where he was, I think, in 2018, and that is he's keeping a promise to his pals in the development industry. I don't have any doubt whatsoever. I think the integrity commissioner is being asked, and so uh, so is the uh, so is the auditor general to look into it. Um, there is no doubt in my mind that um, that uh, the intention was there from the beginning, and and the development industry, uh, who those who want to pay attention to it, were listening quite well when he said he was going to carve out chunks. He is doing that, and so I don't think it should be any secret that somehow uh, they all understood. They were all at the meeting. 
James Pasternak. So, uh, first of all, there are, I guess, a lot of issues with other aspects of the act and, uh, brought up one of them is that, you know, it's, it's based on a hope or, uh, whatever that developers will pass on their savings on development charges without there being anything in the legislation requiring that. Yeah, no, that's perhaps the most disturbing part of this, uh, of, uh, Bill 23 was the, uh, forgiving of, uh, development charges on certain affordable housing, uh, developments. Now, that will probably cost or could cost the city up to $230 million a year. And it was, it was done as an incentive to get, uh, developers to, to build affordable housing. And then, of course, you get into the whole debate of what's uh, what's affordable. So, uh, there's, there's a number of different problems with that legislation. I mean, we used to have, well, we still do a rental replacement. So if someone wants to redevelop a, a rental building and add rental to it or, or a blended retail and, 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 uh, rental, affordable rental and, and condominium, they have to build, uh, rental units to replace any that are being demolished. If that, if that disappears from the planning landscape, we could have thousands of people uh, pushed out of their buildings across the city and uh, really firefights and, uh, and complete legal landlord-tenant legal battles for years to come. So we need to protect the fact that we need the revenue for, of $230 million a year to build the infrastructure so we can build housing. And we also need to protect existing tenants from eviction. James Pasternak, Toronto City Councillor for Ward 6, York Centre. David Crombie, former Mayor of Toronto. And Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Sita from Mississauga phoned about what she calls Ford government overreach. Mr. Ford, Bill 124 and Bill 23 has to go. 1% raise is inhumane. Wasting taxpayers' money and taxing taxpayers to debt should be a crime. Angela from Woodbridge phoned to weigh in on Bill 23. There have been many permits that have been issued for buildings, and I'm just wondering why the PC government isn't going after builders and telling them, look, you've got permits, get building. I know it's the economic uh, forecast, but, you know, they should really be going after them. And another thing is, as I just read now, that Mayor Tom uh, Marrakis in Newmarket, he just uh, tweeted that he'll be asking council to consider adding a new line in the 2023 budget, provincial housing tax. This will represent the tax increase due to the impacts of Bill 23. I guess this is to let the residents know that you can thank Ford for this tax. 
Susan in Toronto phoned to say she does not feel the new provincial law will result in more affordable housing. I just wonder, can they take Doug Ford out right now? I mean, can he (laughs) or do we have to wait to an Uh, election? You have to you have to wait until the next election. And uh, yeah, that's too bad. Because what do you Um, think? Do you think this will result in any more affordable homes? I live in a, you know, small apartment. I'm not going to have a home, but I see apartments, condos, homes going up everywhere. And it just breaks my heart because nobody that is a moderate income or, you know, doesn't, isn't pretty wealthy can afford these places. It's, and you know what? It's not going to stop. It's not going to end. And I, I really believe. That is the future, and that sounds awful, but that's what I think. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Beth in Toronto, who phoned to say long-term care is not the answer. I looked after my mom for 13 years in my home, the, the solution to me seems really very simple. Support home care. Give yeah. the people what they need to take care of their loved ones. A lot of people want to do that, but they just don't feel like they're adequate to do that, that they can't do it. They don't have the skills or the knowledge. Give them the nurses and the PSWs to support them in their homes, and they'll keep their loved ones with them because that's what seniors want. They want to stay in the home, and they want to be with their loved ones. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and call our fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.